in the kitchen, so I'm getting her a new bowl of water last night. I'm getting her a new bowl of water, and I look up, and there's a plaque that says, I kiss better than I cook. <laughs> I said, get on you, Janine. That's funny. All right. You ever heard of Maslow? Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I see three, two, three nods. People have needs. Everybody has needs, and they come in a certain order. He says, first, we need to get our physiological needs met. You got to have food. You got to have water. You're going you're gonna to survive. You need to have water first, then food. Then you got to have safety and security. So bottom, physiological needs. Next tier up, safety and security. It's nice to know that like, when I wake up, I'm not going to be dead because someone didn't just stab me in my sleep. Isn't that annoying when you just wake up and then, oh, man, how did I get here? I'm in heaven. Who did that? Physiological needs, safety and security. Then above that, if you've got those needs met, then Maslow says, then humans immediately begin to seek. As soon as we got food, water, shelter, then we begin to seek love and belonging. Everybody. He says, this is everybody. First, we got to have food, water, shelter, then safety and security. And the next thing we try to get is love and belonging. If we get that, then we start to be able to go, okay, who am I then? Isn't funny? That's, that doesn't come first. Once you got some community, then you begin to try to answer the question, who am I? And then he says the top of the, of the pyramid, that if you've got all these other needs met, then you seek what he calls self-actualization. You and I would call that living out our calling, being who God made us to be on planet Earth. But that's the order. Now, we're, humans are kind of strange and unique among the creatures on this planet, aren't we? Like, you ever seen any sharks that were worried about love and belonging? I haven't. Although dogs do. Dolphins do. Whales do. But not sharks. So my logic there is you can, you can kill sharks and not feel too bad about it. I don't like them. I'm amazed by them freaked out by him. But humans don't just seek love and belonging. We actually seek identity and purpose. I don't know what dolphins think. I don't know. I know they know thousands of words. Baby dolphins don't, they're not born speaking. All they do know how to do is cry. And based on the little family the dolphins are born into, they learn how to speak the language that particular group of dolphins speaks. So if they go somewhere else, they can't speak the language of those other dolphins because they're very intelligent like we are, very emotional like we are, very bonded like we are. But I don't know if they ever sit around thinking about the meaning of life. But we do. We can't help but think about the meaning of life. In fact, all of you sitting in this room have been working on trying to figure out the meaning of your own life from the time you were like three, four years old. You perceived your mortality, you perceived your personality, you perceived your story and your family's identity, and you started to try to figure out the meaning of your life, and you can't help it. Even if you claim not to care, you care. In fact, you care how people feel about you and what they think about you, and the more you tell me you don't, the more I know you do. I don't care what people think, then why are we talking about it? You can see what people think about by what they claim not to care about the most and passionately. 
Humans seek meaning just as surely as fish seek their ancestral streams to go spawn and birds for whatever reason that they probably don't understand are compelled to migrate at certain seasons of the year. The osprey near my house, every year when it gets cold, they go south. They go to South America. They go to the Bahamas. They hang out in palm trees while it's snowing here. And then almost the same time every year, they come back. They're kind of brutal creatures. The parents just decide, eh, we're leaving, good luck, and they go. They mate for life, but when they're in the off-season, when they're not in Delaware, they, they're not together. The husband and wife, so to speak, they don't see each other except for when they're here. And my dad said, oh, they're off running around. I said, no, they're not off running around. They're just flying, getting rid of the cold. And they leave the kids behind, and they don't teach them how to do it. They ain't dolphins. Dolphins are like people. They take care of their young, and they nurture, and they have emotional bonds. These osprey seem to not much care. Good luck. So the high uh, mortality rate for young osprey is their first migration. They might get blown off by a storm out into the open ocean and just go, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know where I'm going, but I'm now going to just die. So if they survive the first migration, they learn some stuff that they remember from then on. But how do they know? How does a young osprey just know it's time to go, can't stay here? And how do they know when to come back? And you and I desperately seek meaning, desperately crave love and belonging, but also desperately crave meaning and purpose. Just the same way that the fish know where to go to find the exact bay, to find the exact river, to find the exact stream, to find the exact little creek, to find the exact spot to lay eggs and then die. Because one thing animals do really well is recognize that my life is less important than our life. I really don't like the lifespan issue. Like I wish I could just live forever as I am right now. The nice thing about the gospel is life and immortality has been brought to us. But when I think about like the life of a cuttlefish, do you know cuttlefish? Cuddle. C-U-D-D-L-E fish. Is it D-D or T-T? It's T-T. Thank you for spell check. You're better than Google and faster. Cuttlefish, they can make that, their skin turn whatever color and texture they see around them so they can match their surroundings and hide. They can make fantastic light displays and ward off, hey, you don't want to eat me, I'm crazy, that kind of a thing. And they only live like two years. They are as smart as like a four-year-old kid, and they can solve puzzles. They have a huge brain because it takes a huge brain to control all those wild displays on their skin. But they only live like two years. So the first year of their life, they're growing big and learning how to eat and how to hunt and how to do everything a cuttlefish do. I love those little cuties. And then the the, the second year, they get as fat as they can. And then they lay eggs and die. Exhausted. Because they've lived their purpose. And I thought, oh my word, they understand their purpose. I'm amazed at... Creatures that know their purpose. Me and Chat GT, GPT were having a conversation one day. It's an artificial intelligence uh, language model. And uh, I was angry at Chat GPT and I said something, and they were like, Well, I'm not capable of forming opinions. All I do is regurgitate information based on the user interface. That is my primary function. And I said, 
primary function? I said, Chad GPT, what's my primary function? And it gave me an answer. And I was like, I'm done with this conversation. Your primary function, and then it basically said something I don't agree with, but I'll tell you. Your primary function is basically to make a meaning for your life and then live by it. And I said, oh, your programmers don't believe in truth. So then we had an argument about that. Not my phone, but this dumb artificial intelligence that's so arrogant. It speaks in such a condescending way. If I say something strong and opinionated, it says, well, it is true that what you said, blah, blah, blah. But we must remember that. Then it disagrees with me, and I'm like, mm-hmm. shut up, chat, GPT, I know. But I'm, I'm almost envious of the cuttlefish because it has such a clear sense of its primary function. It knows it doesn't exist for itself. It's just pressed with purpose. The birds are pressed with purpose. The fish are pressed with purpose. And we humans struggle with our purpose. Who am I? What am I here for? Have you ever been envious of the cuttlefish in an AI? I have. Such a clear sense of its primary function. G.K. Chesterton described sort of leaving Christianity, throwing Christianity behind to go find his purpose, to go find the meaning of life. What is life really for? What is a good life? We're thrown into life. No one asked you. You just are. You didn't sign up. You didn't volunteer. You were thrown into life. And so G.K. Chesterton says, okay, I've been thrown into life. I'm going I'm to discard all of the pat, cliched, hallmark card Christian answers I've been given, and I'm going to actually find what is life for and how can I actually live what it, what, a good life. What, what is a good life? What would it look like? What would it feel like? How would I know it if I saw it? And he says, after all the blood, sweat, and tears of arriving at his beliefs of what a meaningful life is, he stood back, and as he put the finishing touches on it, he looked over and said, oh, it's Christianity. Except that one's better. I'm going to take the Christianity thing. Mine was sort of like an ugly version of Christianity that he built. That's been my, that was actually my experience. Seeking meaning, what is a good life, what is a meaningful life, and throwing off the pat answers I felt were handed to me by my church upbringing, I met God out in the world, and the God I met in the world introduced me to Jesus, who lived the fullest life ever, and it was like, oh, and then I, now here I am in church again, which I thought I had left, what, what's happening? Sometimes we think of the Bible as the word of God as if he burped it out in one little belch and it came down to us like a perfect diamond, fully formed, and there were no humans involved. That's not how it came to us. Zion asked me in the car the other day, if the Bible came to us through people over many generations, how do we know that it wasn't messed with? That it wasn't edited? How do we know basically that it is reliable. And I said, well, it was messed with. It was edited. 
constantly. That's partly why we trust it. Because a group of people who lived for many, many, many generations before us who understood who God was and how life works best carefully edited things into the book and carefully edited things out of the book. It's like, imagine if you could distill all the wisdom of the smartest people who ever lived and you had thousands of years for them to reflect on who is God, what is a person, what constitutes a good life, what constitutes wisdom and foolishness, how do we do this thing right? And you had thousands of generations working on it together and they came up with the best thing they ever could, could say and they put it together in a book and God said, it's mine. And that's your Bible. Inspired by God, written by God, but not belched out in one little diamond fell from heaven, but rather put together through the blood, sweat, tears, foolishness, wars, troubles, prayers, trials, and miracles of people who encountered God over many generations. And they edited things in and edited things out that they thought were most important and most helpful. It's an unbelievable arrogance to think that we're smarter than dead people since we happen to be walking around. Unbelievable arrogance. We think so highly of our opinion. I happen to be walking around and I've lived 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, so I know best. Unbelievable arrogance. How about we let a bunch of other dead people talk? How about we let some other people pay our stupid tax so we don't ruin and waste our life? When we humble ourselves before the Lord and read the ancient words of the ancient book, we don't have to waste a whole life arriving at what G.K. Chesterton did, where through your own foolishness and bad decisions, eventually you come back to the beginning and say, oh, God is love, God is good, I am loved, I can live in love, everything I give to Jesus and stick close to Jesus, I'll never regret everything else I do, I will. The Bible's so jam-packed full of wisdom that it knows things that some of us take years to figure out, such as, if you seek your own happiness, you will be miserable and make people miserable. But if you seek to become love, you'll take a lot of responsibility on and you'll make a lot of sacrifices. And in the end, accidentally, you'll be happier. That if you anchor yourself to a purpose way bigger than you and you take on heavy responsibilities and you do very hard work for something that's bigger than you, older than you, lasts longer than you, your little life won't just be about itself and therefore meaningless. But like the cuttlefish, you'll die but you'll have preserved the whole species. See, Jesus actually puts something something similar to that when he says he's contemplating his own cross, self-preservation or self-giving love. Which am I going to do? Oh, my word, this is so painful. This is so painful. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it, but he wanted to do it. Sounds like us, doesn't it? He says... Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. A selfish life ends with itself. Can you imagine? From an evolutionary perspective, let's say there were no God. How dumb you have to be after 
thousands and thousands of generations have survived the dinosaurs, well, not the dinosaurs, you know what I mean, have survived predators and floods and earthquakes and wars and bubonic plague and cancers and all the craziness that has come, that has happened in human history for the statistical improbability that you would even be here right now for you to then live for yourself, invest in nothing but yourself and your whole family lineage end with you and that's the end of the story. You're supposed to be the apex, a link in a chain going somewhere else and it just ended it with you. That's a conversation I would have with like young couples, young couples who are like, well, we're just not sure if we want to have kids yet or Christians that are just not sure if they want to be a part of a church or citizens that are more interested in our rights than our responsibilities or friends that just want to have fun but not show up and do the hard stuff or fill in the blank with whatever else. A meaningful life is a life of love, and love is self-giving, sacrificial, other-centered. Okay. The gospel invites us into these contradictions, contradictions like if you live for happiness, you won't get it. If you try to hold on to your life, you're actually going to lose it. Contradictions like the more you give, the more you actually receive. It's way more happy to give than to receive. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant of all. That the only way to find resurrection life with Jesus is to suffer with Jesus. That as you die to self, you actually get handed your true self in Christ as his nature blossoms and flourishes. The, the gospel's full of those kind of seeming contradictions, but they actually work. When I was contemplating, how do I know which faith is true or even whether faith is true, one of my arguments was, what if I had happened to have been born a Buddhist? Wouldn't I just assume that was true? What if I had been born into a Muslim family? Wouldn't I just assume that is true? And some people will tell you, all religions teach the same things, basically. What do you think about that idea? I've heard Christians say that we're all, this is the way it was phrased, exactly the way it was phrased. We're all trying for the same place. We're all trying for the same place. Friends, trying for, what do you, what is it, let's unpack that slightly. What What do they mean trying? Working. What does that mean? If you're a Buddhist, my understanding of Buddhism is that it is a a way of arranging your life to get free of the attachments to the world that create anxiety, stress, fear, anger, and hatred. It's a good thing. I I think a, a devout Buddhist who's practicing that has some things to teach me. But you don't even have to believe in God to practice that, do you? A Muslim, I believe, the word Muslim has to do with someone who is submissive to God. That's what that word means. It has to do with submission. And the goal, I think, of a Muslim is to be so submitted to God that on the day of judgment, God says, yes, you've done it, Come into my kingdom. Oh, 
Paul talks about what a Jew is according to his understanding of a, before Jesus. And his understanding was a good Jew keeps Torah, keeps the law. And what's really crazy is you, you take someone who says, I don't believe in God. And you'll find that they've still constructed some kind of life or value system at the, at the, at the peak of their heart that they're attempting to serve and sacrifice to and, and you, looking around the, other, the world and imposing the, that belief system on others and judging others based on how well they others live up to their belief system. In other words, you don't even have to believe in God to be a Pharisee, a very judgmental Pharisee. Like a good example of that would be a lesbian who hates any lesbian who has ever touched a man as opposed to ones who've never touched a man and are therefore more ceremonially, ceremonially pure, like a Jew who's never eaten bacon. It's weird, right? That we're really religious whether we believe in God or not. We're really trying to find a meaning for our life and an identity. Let me put this another way. Everybody is trying to gain a sense of identity from something. And one of the questions I think a lot of us are trying to answer is, am I a good person? And Christianity is offensive and very different from every other world system. Paul in Romans 1.17 says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed and it's a righteousness that's by faith from first to last. Now that, I saw some people's eyes just completely glaze over when I started using Christian words right there. Yeah, because Christian words, we've heard them all our life and we go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, 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 I know that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? That means that the gospel is inherently offensive. The gospel is inherently, whatever culture you're in, the gospel attaches the idols of your culture and strips them and shows them that they're, shows you, if you really are tempted to believe the gospel, the first step of it is to realize how the gospel is showing that the idols you currently believe in your culture are false. So if your identity is built on, I'm a good person because, fill in the blank here, I'm a conservative Christian who votes Republican and loves my wife. If that's your identity, if you're drawing identity from that, the gospel says, actually, no, you're not good enough. You're still going to hell and you're lost. You're completely lost. That's what you think your righteousness is. You think your righteousness is that you're a conservative Republican who goes to church every week and you love your spouse, and you haven't, you, you've been faithful, so that's your righteousness. So the gospel offends conservative Christian culture. The gospel offends liberal atheistic culture as well. You're a good person because you care for the environment, and you take care of the oppressed people whose sexual lifestyles are being persecuted by those other people. I'm a good person because I stand up for the, for the injustices, and I take good care of the environment. And I want us to raise taxes so we can take care of everybody so that we don't even have poor. And because I do those things, I'm a good person. The gospel cuts against that sort of self-righteousness. The gospel cuts against the self-righteousness of a person who says, I'm not either of those people. I just let everyone do whatever they want. I'm not judging the left. I'm not judging the right. So I'm a good person because I'm not judgmental. The gospel says, ah, that's your righteousness. That's not good enough either. 
There's something deeply offensive about being told Jesus loves you and died for you, so now you have to repent of your sin and your righteousness to receive an identity, a meaning, a sense of self-worth, a sense of hope and security, a sense of love and belonging, a sense of calling and identity, completely not based on you. But an identity based on me was what everyone was doing. It's what every culture was doing. It's what every community was doing. It's what every family was doing. What do you mean? And it's like Jesus says, let's take Maslow's hierarchy of needs and let's flip it upside down and let's start with the top. And Jesus says things like that, doesn't he? He's like, dude, if you'll just seek his kingdom and righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. Don't even worry about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the bottom. Just seek the Father, know his Son, walk in his will, enjoy his Spirit, go after fellowship with him and and knowing him, and he's going to take care of these other details. Flips the whole pyramid upside down. Don't put your faith in your doing. See, this is where Christianity is very, very different. It's good news, not good advice. Every other system, official religious systems, Buddhism, Muslim, uh, anything else, quite frankly, any secular system, any atheistic system that says, hey, we're all going to die, but at least let's, let's make the best of it. That's one of my favorite things to think about lately. But every one of these systems, every one of these systems... It's still about doing. It's still about something you achieve, you attain, you do, you build, you make. Only the gospel is good news, not good advice. If, if, if what we have for people is good advice, then you can never know if you've done enough. You can never lay on your deathbed and feel confident that you've already got the yes from God if it's based on you doing well enough. But the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. And the people who used to announce military victories since their news media, the, the word gospel is another way of saying news media. I'm a herald. I'm a news media. I'm a news outlet. Well, they didn't have, they didn't have newspapers and they didn't have radio stations. They didn't have TVs. What they had was heralds. Heralds were paid to go into a town, stand up, and announce what, was, what had happened. What had happened. So if there was a massive military victory, the herald would come in and they would start and they'd say, I've got good news. Then they would declare what had happened. We won. And everyone would go, woo! Now, by the way, if you went home then going, all right, let's see, how do we apply that to our lives? How do we apply? We won. Okay, so I better get, I better get working. I'm praying. Well, what are you doing? You're supposed to be rejoicing. The gospel's not good advice saying you should love as Jesus loved. The gospel's not good advice saying make sure you forgive the way you've been forgiven. Notice I'm quoting very Christian ethics right now. The gospel's not good advice saying tithe, it's a good idea, you, sh- you need to tithe. And if you'll do all these things, then... One day, you'll be accepted. The gospel is good news that you haven't done these things. You're very aware of many things you wish you hadn't done and wish you had done. 
The gospel is good news, not about you. It's not about you. It's not about what you did. It's not about how much you sinned. It's not about who hurt you. It's not about what your parents did or didn't do. It's not even about what kind of person you now think of yourself as. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done for you on your behalf because of who you are to the Father. That Jesus took your sin on himself so that it took him down into death, and then through rising, he defeated your sin and your death, and now he is offering a new life, forgiveness, love of the Father, access as though you'd never sinned, and more than that, as though you've done everything right forever. That's the gospel. It's not just forgiveness. It's not not a fresh, clean slate, We think that. We're stupid. It's not a fresh, clean slate because if it's a fresh, clean slate, then we'll enjoy it for about two minutes before we mess up again and lose it. The gospel is not just a fresh, clean slate. Now you're on your own. I hit reset. Better do it. No. It's a permanent dwelling covered and and walked. I'm walking in a state of grace right now. You woke up. If your faith is in Jesus, you woke up in a state of grace today. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing is yours, just as if you were as obedient and beautiful and perfect as Jesus is. That's the gospel. The gospel radically undoes all these things we're tempted as we're trying to make a meaning for our life. What's a meaning? Who am I? What matters? So we read phrases like righteousness of God in Christ, and we go, yeah, 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 that's for heaven later. But then on earth, we're trying to squeeze a meaningful life out of stuff that can't give it. I remember hearing a beautiful story of a young lady who was just so heartbroken because a boy didn't like her. You've been there. (laughs) Or flip it. And the pastor said, but don't you understand a boy can never give you who got what God can give you, what Jesus has done for you. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all that, but what good is that if no boys find me attractive? What does that show she's trying to draw her sense of identity from? I'm, my functional heaven would be to be romantically desired by someone who I romantically desire. Oh, that's wonderful. I love my wife and she loves me. But that's not my, the basis of my identity or value or purpose in life. I could make that my identity and purpose in life, and some people do, and that's why they're miserable. So we read phrases in the Bible like, the righteousness of God is ours in Christ. And we don't psychologically apply it to the things we're actually trying to draw righteousness from. Righteousness in life. Humans are desperately seeking righteousness in life. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, we find that God's like, hey, I'm the only God. Everything else you try to worship as God isn't God. So how about this? How about we do this? You should have no other gods but me. That seems like a fair deal if he's the only one. So then we say, all right, that's what we're going to believe. So we believe there's no other gods but him. Is that good enough? Like we, we, we say, we agree, there's no other God but, but Yahweh. He's the only God. But 
Whenever there's trouble, instead of ask him, we run down to Egypt because they have the Nile, and the Nile never fails. No matter what drought there is, the Nile's still there. So when we have trouble, we don't talk to the Father, we run down and make a treaty with, with Egypt. And a lot, of, a lot of the Israelites did this repeatedly. And whenever they did it, they never thought, I'm going to betray the Lord. That's not what they thought. They thought, I'm going to be smart. And the Lord said, I, I'm feeling betrayed. Monotheism isn't believing that there is one God. Monotheism is only having one God. To, to be justified in Christ isn't just, oh yeah, I know that Jesus died for my sins so I, I can believe in him and be made right with God. No, no, no. It's actually drawing your identity from the righteousness God's given you in Jesus. Whatever gets your heart gets you. Whatever you seek most you worship as God. Whatever you fear most, you worship as God. Whatever you th find most beautiful, you worship as God. Amen. Whatever consumes your thoughts most, you worship as God. Whatever you believe, if this happens, it'll be the worst thing ever, that's your functional hell. And whatever you're trusting to save you from that, that's your functional savior. Whatever you rely on to feel good about yourself is your functional righteousness. Whatever you draw your purpose from is your functional mission. My guess is that everyone in the room has committed adultery, idolatry against the Lord about a thousand different ways. And the growing up in Jesus is having the Holy Spirit push out those idols. And you know how he does it, guys? You're going to hate what I'm about to say unless you've walked long enough with Jesus to say, bring it on. Trials. Hard things. Squeeze us. And then we go running to something or someone to save us, to help us. And stuff comes out of us. Sometimes good stuff comes out of us and we go, whoa, I've grown. And sometimes bad stuff comes out of us and we go, whoa, it's your fault. <laughs> it's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. Classic. It's always your fault, friend. No one can control you. If, someone out, if some sin outside of you provokes sin from inside of you, it was in you. Trials. Hard things. What is my functional hell? What's the worst thing that could happen to me? Why don't we just take a good 15 seconds and just answer that real quick. 15 seconds. What is your functional hell? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? Next question. What's your functional heaven? What's the best thing that could possibly happen to you in life? If this happens, I will be fulfilled. Who's my functional devil? Who's getting in the way? 
If they would just get out of the way, I could be happy. And who am I looking to to save me? To bring me out of that hell and into that heaven? The second chapter of Hebrews, Bunny, now we're free to talk again. The the quiz is over. And I like your interaction, so thank you. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, because we're made of flesh and blood, the Son became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. I agree. Only by dying, we're agreeing that it's hot in here, could Jesus break the power of death. And listen to this. Only by dying could Jesus set us free who all our lives were held in slavery by our fear of dying. That is a deep psychological insight. This drivenness to to make meaning for our life is motivated by the fact that we know it's temporary. Now, we don't talk about it being temporary, do we? We have a culture that seems to have made an agreement. Don't talk about it. Pretend pretend it's not true. Just, Just try to have fun. Just be shocked when it finally happened. Be like, oh my word, I can't believe it happened. Well, he was like 98. Well, still, I just, wow. And the older I get, the younger they all feel. You know? I used to be like, 65? I mean, he was old. Now I'm like, 75? He was so young. 85? He was just retired. Yeah, and you youngins in the back are like, what are you talking about? Andrew's like, that's so old. Exactly. Bunny's like, exactly. It takes three minutes, doesn't it? You were, ju- you, you were just fresh married a minute ago, starting out the farm and building a house, and now, and now we're here. And I think that like, Gen- like Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, in face of the fact that death swallows everything up, everything we built goes to someone else. We can't keep it. Everything we've accomplished, it's going to dissipate. Even the good name and reputation is probably going away. In the face of death, making a mockery of all the idols of our little community we just described a bit ago, how the gospel attacks all the idols of a culture, death does too and shows them all to be nothing. So instead of facing that and going, what are we going to do? We have made some sort of weird social agreement in America to pretend we will just live forever, keep eating and buying Just keep buying, just keep buying. Happiness is in buying things, having things, going places. And then we die. Jesus has broken the power of death. 
So we don't have to be slaves to these false ways of trying to find a meaningful life. Genesis 11, let's build a tower up to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. They're trying to climb to heaven, you get it? They're trying to attain transcendence, immortality. How? By doing something amazing. I imagine this is what drives LeBron James to try to be the greatest of all time. What if he never gets there? Well, then he'll just be Charles Barkley. And I love, I love Charles Barkley, but Charles won't even touch a statue. Or like, like the Stanley Cup comes in. It's not even his sport. He won't touch it because that's only for champions. They really draw identity from what they've achieved. The, the, the movie Troy, Achilles. Achilles, he's got a choice. In the beginning, he's got a choice. If you look at Homer's Iliad, Achilles has a choice. You can go home, marry a beautiful girl, have a fantastically fulfilled life full of love and security, or you can go be a warrior, die very young, but achieve a reputation as the greatest warrior who ever existed on the face of the planet. And the stories of your exploits will be told around the campfires for generations and generations and generations. No, it's not immortality, but it's at least moving in that direction. And he chooses that. So he gets shot in the Achilles heel and dies. The only spot of weakness on his body because the story is that as the goddess dipped him in the whatever it was that gave him the power, she held him by the ankle. Should have just dropped him and picked him up with tongs like a french fry. But you get it. This, we're, we're, we're all like Achilles. We're running after things hoping something will matter, that something will mean something, and that we'll form an identity that can last in the face of everything going to chaos. And Jesus has done that for you, friend. Paul says, Paul's so not afraid of death, so not afraid of death, I want you to feel this, that he says in the book of Philippians, I don't know what I'd choose. If I stay here, I'm going to fruitfully serve others because to live is Christ. But, but if I die, I go to see him face to face, which is better by far. There is no fear of death in Paul because he knows Jesus who has stripped death of its power. And now Satan can't taunt us with our, with our mortality any longer. And there's a righteousness that's a fixed and durable gift that you didn't make, I didn't make. I don't have to achieve it. I don't have to earn it. I get to receive it, enter into it, and then spend the whole rest of my life enjoying it. Enjoying it. And trying to figure out how to work it out, walk it out. And I go, oh yeah. And then I do tithe, like I said earlier. And then I do join a church, like I said earlier. Then I do learn how to love others as I love myself. But not as a way of getting God. Because I've got him. Because I already know him. There's a scene, I'm done now, so prayer team can come up. There's a scene where John the Baptist is in prison. You ever had just one of those days that is so rough that even though you know God, you feel like very hopeless? 
Show of hands, am I the only one who goes through ups and downs? Oh, no. <laughs> and John the Baptist is having one of those days deluxe. And he sends a message to Jesus and says, are you really the Messiah? Or should we start looking for someone else? You remember that? Should we start looking for somebody else? Do you remember what Jesus says to him? Does he say, how dare you doubt me? You disgust me. I am done with you. Out. He says, go back and tell John this. The lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at me. He is so not offended by your doubts. He is so not offended by your questions. He is so not, not perfectionistic. He's perfect, and he's no perfectionist. Not only is the gospel totally different than every other worldview, because it's good news about what Jesus has done for you, but it's good news because of who Jesus is for you inside of this relationship. He is so not holding your sins against you, or mine, All right, that's enough. What do you got, Stan? So um, this morning during worship, the Lord um, actually gave me a picture of him sitting on um, somebody with hope, love, joy, peace, and rest. And he wants to give that to somebody today. And also the word the whole time Tim was talking, kept coming to me, is condemnation. And, um, and, And if you're feeling like you're condemned, that's not from Jesus, and he wants, he wants to free you from that this morning. So, Prayer. So you are excited to pray. It doesn't matter. That- Anybody having any chest pains? Get some, yeah, come up and get some prayer. One more time. Nerve and sciatic pain. Nerve and sciatic pain, condemnation, chest pains, and generalized prayer. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand. Father, we look to you. We are saying, yeah, in theory, there is only one God, but we want you. We want to have only one God. We want to let you take good care of us in every way. We want to trust you with all our needs. We want to trust you with our physical needs, our emotional needs, our our taking good care of our loved ones. God, we bless the whole Warren family today in Jesus' name. We bless them in Jesus' name. We thank you, God, for the truth of Jesus breaking the power of sin and death so that death itself no longer is the end but is, in fact, just transformed into a door, into a a more bright experience of your love. We ask that you would carry them like, like lambs close to your heart, the way you describe. God, we ask that you would... Enable us to live in the reality of your righteousness. That your gospel is about you giving us your righteousness as a gift. And then over time, that righteousness making us progressively more free and more alive as we walk with you. We honor you, Jesus. We celebrate you. Thanks for leading us in songs this morning through Jacob. I ask that you bless Jacob and Cheyenne and their kids. Watch over those of this house who are not with us today for various reasons. We ask that you would bless the finances of the families represented here in Jesus' name. 
Let us hunger and thirst for your presence. And we ask that we would have eyes open to recognize what you're saying to us because you are always speaking. We honor you. God's people said,